0: Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There's no murder until you say there is.
1: As the state indicated, there is no body, there is no cause of death, there is no manner of death, and
0: they will not be able to prove it.
1: In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, pop superstar Taylor Swift talked about how she came up with some of the lyrics in one of her hit songs. Specifically, she wanted to honor her good friend Esty by dropping her name and by citing some of Esty's personality traits. Like the fact that her favorite restaurant was the Olive Garden. The finished result was all about Esty getting murdered. Swifties, you already know the song I'm talking about. The one with lyrics like, Esty wasn't there, Tuesday night at Olive Garden, at her job, or anywhere. He reports his missing wife, and I noticed when I passed his house, his truck has got some brand new tires. On her 2020 album, Evermore, Taylor's song, No Body, No Crime, tells the story of a woman named Esty who goes missing after a confrontation with her husband. Everybody knows he killed her, but since the police can't locate Esty's body, Nobody can do a thing about it. In reality, so-called no-body homicides do exist. This refers to a scenario in which prosecutors charge someone with a murder, even if they've never actually recovered the alleged victim's remains. Interestingly, an analysis by a homicide expert of no-body crimes found that when these kinds of cases go to trial, they actually result in convictions more often than traditional homicides. Which isn't to suggest that it's easy to solve nobody murders. Far from it, in fact. Without a corpse, investigators have little physical evidence to show exactly when a person died or how they were killed, which means they can't easily check alibis to rule out suspects. And if they don't have remains, detectives also need to work harder to prove that a person was indeed murdered. After all, the victim might just as easily have died the result of an accident. Or they could even still be alive, just in hiding. It takes a lot of investigation and some good old fashioned guesswork to demonstrate that a homicide occurred. And that's all before anyone tries to identify who did it. So when 37 year old Nashville area model Nicole Burgess, who went by Nikki, suddenly went missing, her loved ones knew they had a long road ahead of them to get justice. This story begins with a young boy whose name hasn't been released to the public. For clarity and to protect his identity, we'll be using a pseudonym throughout this episode. Let's call the boy Isaac. On Friday, May 23rd, 2014, Isaac's father, Caleb Cannon, picked him up from his Nashville area school and took him to his mother's place in a suburb called Hermitage. It was odd, as Isaac and his dad didn't usually go to his mother's house when she wasn't around. But Isaac was 10 years old, at an age when he wasn't used to questioning adult behavior too closely. Caleb told Isaac to play with a friend outside, so he and another boy spent the afternoon riding bikes and playing on a trampoline, before eventually heading back to Isaac's mother's house. Even now, his mom, Nikki Burgess, wasn't home but Isaac's friend noticed the house had a strong bleach smell throughout. When he asked to use the bathroom, Caleb refused to let him, or even to open the door for that matter. He claimed the toilet was broken. Instead, Isaac and his friend watched a movie while Caleb sat beside them on the couch, reading a book. But nothing about his father's behavior struck Isaac as odd, at least not at the time. When it was time to head home, Isaac climbed into Caleb's car and he sat and waited as his father trudged back and forth between the house and the vehicle, hauling something heavy into the back. Isaac couldn't make out what it was exactly and after Caleb tucked the item away in the rear, it was out of sight, out of mind. Caleb then dropped Isaac off at his grandmother's house and Isaac didn't really see him again for the rest of the weekend. He never saw what Caleb had dropped in the car, nor did he know what he'd done with those items afterward. Isaac didn't realize it at the time, but he may have actually been watching as his father cleaned up the scene of a murder. The alleged victim was Isaac's mother, Nicole Burgess. Her friends just called her Nikki, and they knew her as a vibrant, outgoing woman. She was always the life of the party, Quick to smile and laugh, but she also knew when to reel it in and just be there for someone in need. Nikki owned two dogs, and she was a doting pet owner. Her friend, Stephanie Blaney, who went by Stevie, said that Nikki treated her dogs like they were her children. And then, of course, they were Nikki's actual children. She was a mother of two. The oldest lived with her brother, and Nikki shared custody of her younger son with her ex, Caleb Cannon. She lived in Hermitage, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville, and she'd recently moved to the city because she was an aspiring model and thought it might help jumpstart her career. With her striking reddish-brown hair and tattoos, she had a distinct look, which helped her find some moderate success on Instagram. Her neighbor, James McKavanaugh, knew a bit about Nikki's career. They lived in the same duplex and occasionally chatted outside while smoking on their shared front porch.
2: Well, she was a pinup girl for a while, you know, the whole what does that mean? I, I'm, I'm just- sure what's not trying to be argumentative. What do you mean? By pin-up girl? by Okay, that that's the um, the that 50s look, the rockabilly. I don't know if you're familiar with any of that or whatever. Uh, they take photos on cars and, you know, um, just pictures and different types of outfits that are kind of modern slash 50s uh, or whatever. And she's It wasn't, uh, she was very good at it, you know, perfect uh, person to do it, but she got out of it, so.
1: Nikki hadn't made it big yet and went through periods of unemployment and financial strain, which was an important aspect of her friendship with Stevie, who had also been financially supporting Nikki for a decent chunk of their nearly year-long friendship. Stevie knew Nikki was out of work and her Instagram modeling career wasn't paying enough to cover the bills. But that's what friends are for, right? Stevie chatted and talked to Nikki on the phone constantly. They discussed just about everything, and Stevie knew that in May of 2014, Nikki was excited because in just one week, she was planning to move in with her boyfriend, Jason Henry. Stevie had agreed to help Nikki pack and transport her things to Jason's house, the mark of a truly devoted friend. So it was weird when on the 24th, Nikki abruptly stopped replying to her messages.
3: And about how many times did the two of you speak on the phone that day? Uh, a couple, two, I think. And do you remember the last time you actually spoke on the phone? I do. Okay, when was that? Um, it
4: was around one o'clock.
3: And do you remember about how many times the two of you texted that
4: day? Uh, back and forth, roughly like 25 times.
3: Now, at some point, did you stop receiving her text? Yes. And at what time did you receive her last text message?
4: Um, I think it was, um, maybe two, two something around two o'clock.
3: An
4: afternoon.
3: Yes. Now, after you received that last text message, did you continue to text her? I did. But how many times?
4: Uh, that day, probably about four, five. And
3: did you get a
4: response
3: from her? No. Did you continue to call her? Yes. Okay, about how many times? Uh, a lot. <laughs> and what was what would happen when you
4: called her? It went straight to voicemail.
1: Stevie wasn't the only person to notice how Nikki became abruptly unresponsive. Nikki's boyfriend, Jason Henry, had a similar experience. Like Stevie, Jason tended to talk to Nikki a lot.
3: Did you see Ms. Burgess back on Friday, May 23rd, 2014? No. Okay.
0: Did you communicate with her
3: on that day? Yes. And did you exchange text messages? Yes. About how many text messages would you say the
0: two of you exchanged
3: that
0: day? Several text messages. I mean, um, that was the end of my work day, and she was scheduled to come to Sparta, so it was quite often. And did you call
3: her? Yes. Around how
0: many times you say to the about that day? I can't recall two or three anyway.
1: We want to briefly highlight one detail Jason just shared, that Nikki was coming over to see him that weekend. See, she wasn't going to come alone. Nikki was supposed to spend Memorial Day weekend with her boyfriend Jason and her best friend Stevie. Nikki had agreed to pick Stevie up at her house on Saturday morning the day after she stopped replying to calls and texts. But Nikki never showed up, which again was utterly unlike her. Once more, Stevie tried calling and texting Nikki, and just like the day before, Nikki didn't answer, which was so out of her character. Stevie couldn't help but to worry. So, as, as soon as she could, she found another friend who was willing to drive her up to Nikki's place.
4: Um, whenever I got off work, I had a friend of mine. Um, took me to Nashville, and uh, went and knocked on the door. Um, I actually got a pack of cigarettes and a six-pack of beer to hoping she was there and just, uh, and uh,
3: then Let I me left. Ask, before you got to the house, during this time, had you been communicating with Jason Henry and Ms. Burgess' boyfriend? Mm, yes, I had. So when you got to her house, do you remember around what time you got to her?
4: house on that Saturday May twenty fourth?
3: say 10, 11 o'clock. And is that in the morning or in the?
4: In the PM. PM,
3: correct. And when you got to your house, you mentioned what you brought. Did you attempt to knock on the doors? I did. Okay, were there any answers?
4: No, um, there were dog barks, but there weren't any answers.
3: Did you try looking inside windows or
4: anything? I did. Um, The one window you could see in that didn't have a curtain pulled, um, I could see the dogs had food and water, um, but I couldn't see anything.
3: By that time it was dark outside. Was there any lighting on inside the
4: house? All the lights were on in the house. Now,
3: did you try opening any of the doors?
4: Um, I jiggled the front door, but I didn't try the back door.
1: After a peek in Nikki's car and a check-in with her father, Stevie decided it was time to notify the authorities. After all, based on all of the evidence, any reasonable person would assume something had happened to Nikki. But that would be an assumption, not proof. And even though investigators later searched her house from top to bottom, they didn't find any indication of where she had gone or what happened to her. But the state of Nikki's home told a story that she had either been abducted or perhaps even murdered. But so far, nobody could prove it. At least not without a body. This episode is proudly sponsored by Wild Grain. Hey guys, I got a little secret. If you've ever come over to my house and had a dinner with my family, you know at least two or three times a week we're making amazing fresh bread. And the newsflash, it's baked from frozen from Wild Grain. In our most recent box, we ordered one of Wild Grain's sourdough sesame seed loaves which pairs amazingly well with my wife's homemade soup. We also got a double order of mine and my wife's favorite, the giant chocolate chunk cookies. And I love it because it takes all the guesswork out of baking and even I can do it. So guys, check out Wild Grain, the first ever Bake from Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and even artisanal pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. It's super convenient and easy. And you can now fully customize your Wild Grain box, so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box, when you go to wildgrain.com forward slash choir to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box, and $30 off your first box, when you go to wildgrain.com slash choir. That's wildgrain.com slash choir, or you can use promo code choir at checkout. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, I know one thing about relationships. That is that I've not always been great at developing and keeping them. Part of that history has to do with trauma from my own childhood and some of it from adulthood. One of the relationships that I've most valued prioritizing in my life is that with my wife. Now, over the years, we've developed a great style of communication and openness with one another, but there are times when I need to talk to somebody else to work things out or figure issues out that have more to do with me. That's where I've always benefited from therapy is being able to have an objective sounding board, someone I can talk to who can help me work through things and develop strategies to deal with my own issues that may be impacting my relationships with others. So, if you're at all thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if it's not a good match, for whatever reason, you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Invisible Choir today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P dot slash Invisible Choir. The day after Nikki Burgess was reported missing, her boyfriend Jason Henry tried checking in on her, and his experience was similar to that of Stephanie Blaney, who had already gone looking for Nikki.
3: And did you go to Miss Burgess's house
0: on Sunday, May 25th? Yes.
3: Hey, why did
0: you that? Just sheer concern. She hadn't contacted Stevie. Uh, and it's just, I mean, there was a lot to go on that weekend. And it, I mean, it was. It was what time do you think you arrived at her
3: house that Sunday?
0: It wasn't late. I mean, it's a couple hours from home, but maybe lunch, 1 o'clock, something like that.
3: Hey, and when you got to her house, what did you
0: notice? Her car was parked in the yard. Um, I get it's kind of like a little duplex or whatever. There was there was folks over next door at the other place. But
3: and did you attempt to make contact with
0: her? I knocked on the door. Did anybody
3: answer? No. Did you try to physically open the door or did you just
0: knock? No, I just knocked.
3: Did you try looking inside the
0: house? Couldn't really see anything through those doors and blinds. So. And did you do
3: anything else before you closed?
0: now. Not that I
1: can By now, Jason and Stevie were both concerned about Nikki's unresponsiveness. But even though Stevie had called the authorities, they had yet to actually search her home. They only did a quick check-in. Officer Cassandra Del Bosco would later explain.
4: When I first got to the residence, I tried the door, listened just to hear if I see if I could hear anything. I heard some dogs barking. Um. So, and then I went around the residence, kind of checked the windows, make sure nothing was open, see if I could see in, see anything, you know, out of order. And after that, then I just walked around to go see if I could, you know, talk to a neighbor because it was a duplex.
1: That neighbor was James McCavanagh, who lived in the other unit of Nikki's duplex. Based on their conversation, Officer Del Bosco decided she needed to do a more thorough search, She called her sergeant to accompany her inside of the home. When he arrived, she climbed up a ladder to get in through a window.
4: When I entered the window, I immediately noticed that I'm in a child's room because there were bunk beds and child's items, toys and clothing and that kind of stuff.
3: Now, did your sergeant come through the window too or only?
4: I don't remember him coming through the window with me. I remember going through the window and then at some point opening a door
1: the investigators didn't see any signs of forced entry or any of Nikki's personal effects, like a purse or a cell phone. What the police did see was Nikki's dogs were loose, so the officers invited a James McAvenaugh to join them inside to tend to them.
2: Yeah, they said, well, you know, she's not here in, in anywhere or whatever, and we were concerned about feeding the dogs at least. So, so they invited you and your roommate and somebody else? In- well, yeah. It's just a, come on in and feed the dogs. The police
1: department held off on doing a more intensive search until the dogs could be removed from the home. So, at their request, Stevie, Jason, and Nikki's father returned to Nikki's place to get the animals the very next Tuesday.
0: We were there to get the dogs, uh, the animals, so... Did you go inside the house? Yes.
3: How did you get inside
0: the house? Um... I think through the back door, it was unlocked.
1: As the trio walked through the home, they were stunned at the state it was left in.
4: Um, I went in, uh, the dogs were actually not in the kitchen where she would have put them, but they were in the, the part that's carpeted. The kitchen was vinyl, so that's where she always put them just in case they had accidents. Um, there were dog feces everywhere. Um, The dogs have been chewing things up. There was stuff scattered all through the house, just everywhere. It was in complete disarray. Um, The one dog was in was in heat, and she was panting and um,
3: was she bleeding? Yes,
4: she was bleeding. She was. Yeah, she's a white dog. She was. It was very visible that she was bleeding.
1: Nikki's boyfriend Jason was equally as shocked.
0: I mean, it was, a, it was a disaster. It was a, just a train wreck from the beginning to the end. Tell us
3: about that. Not, yeah.
0: Not like somebody just living in fields or not being good at keeping house. It was like just things were just thrown everywhere. I mean, like quilts in the hallway to where, I mean, even if it was a, a hoarder, somebody would make a path to at least walk down to get from point A to point B, and it was just... It was in bad shape.
1: There was also evidence inside the home that someone had cleaned recently, as a bottle of bleach was left sitting out. A discovery that immediately rang alarm bells with Stevie. Yes,
4: yeah, she was allergic to
1: bleach.
3: Have you ever seen bleach bottles out of her
1: home? No. Stevie was always careful when doing laundry if she knew Nikki was coming over. And Nikki's boyfriend Jason was also aware that he couldn't use it either because she was allergic.
0: There was a bottle of bleach in the kitchen, and that didn't look right to me at all.
3: What
0: awesome. that? Foundation? She, uh… Foundation? She didn't like bleach. I guess she was, she was allergic to it. I know at some point she had told me when I was cleaning at the house, like, don't use bleach or whatever. And I'm like, why? And she's like, nah, I can't be around that stuff. So I just thought it was odd to see a bottle of bleach in there, and it was open.
1: Nikki would never buy bleach for ordinary house cleaning, so someone else must have scrubbed the place. Nikki's friend, boyfriend, and father knew better than to disturb the crime scene any further, so they got the dogs and hurried out as quickly as they could. Afterward, the police searched Nikki's house again on May 29th, 2014. It was clear Nikki hadn't been home in a while by that point, In addition to the dog feces and other evidence Stevie and Jason had noticed earlier, the police also found strange bits and pieces of trash and other debris around the home. A bathroom rug with a small stain on it had been moved into the bedroom, and there was a diaphragm crusted with days-old blood in the trash. Cadaver dogs scoured the home multiple times. During one scan, they responded to Nikki's bathtub where they began pawing relentlessly at the drain, their reaction suggesting there had once been decomposing human remains there. The bedspread in Nikki's room was also stained with blood, tangled up with at least one electrical cord, and investigators also recovered a set of brass knuckles there. Unfortunately, forensic technicians weren't able to gather any useful DNA from any of the items. Investigators also found Nikki's purse in her car, which was still parked in front of her place with the door locked. But that was all they could tell by searching Nikki's home. They needed to cast a wider net to better understand what actually happened to the missing woman. So they began by looking at her ex, Caleb Cannon. Stevie had already informed investigators that Nikki and Caleb had been arguing the day she went missing.
4: She said she knew I was kidding, and then she texted me that Caleb was there being a dick. Um, I asked, money, because she said, and she said, not yet. And that was the last time I ever heard from her.
1: Besides the brief exchange, Caleb's behavior on the day of Nikki's disappearance was certainly suspicious enough. He didn't usually pick up his and Nikki's son from school, But on May 23rd, 2014, he did. As a reminder, the 10-year-old boy's name hasn't been made public, but we're referring to him as Isaac. We already covered some of his testimony earlier, but as a refresher, we're going to recap some of those key details. That day, Caleb was incredibly late picking Isaac up from school. So late, in fact, that Isaac fell asleep in the principal's office while waiting for his dad to arrive. By the time Caleb showed up, every other student had already left and gone home. And instead of bringing Isaac to his place, the pair instead drove to Nikki's house. And as a general rule, Caleb never went into Nikki's house if Nikki wasn't home. But on that day, Caleb let himself and Isaac in through the unlocked back door. Isaac didn't see his mother anywhere, but he didn't get to look around for long because Caleb sent him back outside to play with a neighbor. Isaac didn't know what Caleb was busy doing when he was alone in Nikki's house. But he did know that after coming back, he wasn't allowed to go into his mother's bedroom or bathroom, the rooms where police later found bloody objects and where those cadaver dogs took interest in the bathtub. And as we noted earlier, when they left, Isaac saw Caleb carrying something out to his car. While some investigators were scouring Nicky's home, Others were impounding Caleb's car and calling a cadaver dog out to the lot. Caleb's car was parked beside a few other so-called decoy vehicles. The investigators then instructed the dog and her handler to take a look around. The dog sniffed a bit before heading straight toward Caleb's vehicle, specifically his trunk, where Isaac had seen him loading that unidentified item. Now, we want to note here, dog noses are, in a word, incredible. They can distinguish between all types and kinds of scents that humans cannot. And according to one cadaver dog trainer, who testified during Nikki's murder trial, they can even tell the difference between hair and skin cells that shed naturally in comparison to decomposing human flesh. So if a dog responded to Caleb's car, it didn't mean someone had been sitting in the seat. It specifically meant that a decomposing body, at one point, was present in his trunk. This wasn't all they found in Caleb's vehicle, however, as one investigator later explained.
5: It's a Home Depot receipt from um, May 2nd, 2014, for one gallon of smart muriatic acid.
2: Okay. And as a forensic scientist, do you know what muriatic acid
5: is? It's another name for hydrochloric acid.
2: Okay. And tell us about hydrochloric acid.
5: Um... It's a strong acid that has many uses. I used it at the TBI in the drug chemistry section. Um, this particular one, I believe, is used as an industrial strength cleaner. Um, it can be used to clean pools, and um, I read bricks and masonry.
2: Now, is it? Uh, what happens if you pour some some of this on you?
5: Um, it's very corrosive. It would burn your skin. Um, contact with your eyes would would injure your eyes and the vapors are also uh, dangerous. So when I used hydrochloric acid at the lab, I had to have gloves on, goggles, and I worked under a ventilated hood to keep the fumes from bothering me.
1: Something like this would be useful if someone had to clean up a murder scene and destroy any sign of the victim or killer's DNA. When the police searched Caleb's home, they found a stockpile of weapons, though nothing illegal. But most certainly notable. Then there was the testimony police heard from Nikki's neighbor, James McKavanaugh. James and Nikki lived in two separate units in the same duplex. And since James had to work late on Saturday, May 24th, the day before Nikki was reported missing, he pulled into their shared driveway at close to midnight.
2: When I swung my car around, because that's exactly what happens, uh, it faces again Nikki's uh, residence. And uh there was someone on the back porch there that had jumped off the porch um onto the other side of the duplex. Now I want you to be really specific about that. What exactly did you see this person do? <clears throat> okay. In more description than that? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Um how did he move, how did he very specific. Yeah, it was uh, my lights came uh around and then he very quickly jumped off the side uh, and went to the other uh, side and strange. At,
0: at that point,
2: did you have any opportunity to see his face or anything like no. that? And was he moving slowly or quickly? Quickly.
1: Now, James didn't think too much of the bizarre interaction at the time. So he went inside and then returned to his vehicle to grab something he'd left outside.
2: Uh, as soon as I had all my stuff gathered, uh, again, again, my light is off my porch light. Uh, and I go to put my keys in the in the uh, in the door and I look to my left. And there's uh, a person standing there with a cigarette cherry lights up I see the face some earrings. Uh, and I'm as I'm trying to put this you know open the door and stuff I'm trying to think well who the heck would be there at this hour, you know, but, uh, so I went inside.
1: This was an odd place for a middle of the night cigarette break, but once again, James wasn't all that surprised or curious. He knew Nikki was planning on moving in with her boyfriend soon. He figured the strange man was a mover or someone else who was helping her. And he still thought that when he had a third run in with the man later on that same night. This episode is proudly sponsored by Honey Love. Okay, obviously February is the month of love and there's nothing more I love than a comfortable bra for my wife. This is why I buy her almost exclusively Honey Love products. Look, they've revolutionized the bra game so you can say sayonara to underwire and bulky fabrics that trap heat. And this used to be her coming home from a long day of work. She'd drop the purse, hang up the keys, and then the bra would come off because it was so hot and uncomfortable. Honey Love's bras feature supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing lift. Plus, they're made with fabric that's so soft it feels like a second skin. So you'll immediately feel and see the difference. She loves Honey Love bras and shapewear, and that means I love them. So, treat yourself to the best bras on the market and save 20% off at HoneyLove.com forward slash choir. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off. That's HoneyLove.com forward slash choir. After your purchase, they ask you where you heard about them. Please, please, please support our show and tell them we sent you. Treat yourself to honey love because you deserve it. This episode is proudly brought to you by Squarespace. Like if you know anything about me, you know, even before I started a podcast, I've always been a serial entrepreneur. And basically since the beginning, I've been using Squarespace, the all-in-one web design and e-commerce tool, That helps you build a beautiful, responsive website and helps your brand stand out on the internet. The reason I've been using Squarespace for years, including to build and maintain InvisibleChoir.com, is because of all the great features that are built right into their easy platform. They've got an entire library of professionally designed, flexible website templates with nearly every design category and they're completely customizable for your needs. They've also got a phenomenal online store where you can sell physical, digital, or even service products. And they integrate with a variety of other tools as well, which is why I've always used Squarespace. They've also got an amazing analytics platform built right in. So you get incredible insight to help you grow your business. You can learn where people are engaging most with your site and where your sales are coming from. You can even analyze which channels are most effective. So whether you've got a brand or a small business, Head on over to squarespace.com slash choir for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use offer code choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir.
2: And then I went back out to my car to get something else Um, and then there was this other activity of this something being moved Um, and I'm you know, trying a quick look and see what the heck that was all about. And it was uh, just this very uh, uh, duffel bag, real big duffel bag um, being pulled out. And there was one person on one end, and then there was another person on the end. And this is where I saw somebody's head kind of popped out. There was obviously two people trying to get this thing out of the house. Let's take the duffel bag. said it was a large duffel bag? Right. Can you be more specific? Uh, it was like a um, like a hockey-type bag, but not as big. So you're talking like four feet, or you know, something at least a good size. Was the bag empty or full? No, oh, it was full. What makes you think it's full? Well, it was hard for them to move this object. It was not an easy task. You can obviously tell. Um and it was just like I mean if you were to fill it with a bag of like that with sand, it would just really heavy.
1: James got a decent look at the two men who were straining under the duffel bag's weight. One was the same smoking man he had seen earlier, but other than that, James had never seen the other individual before. The second man still to this day has never been identified. One of Nikki's friends has speculated that it may have been Caleb's brother, but we should note, she didn't actually see the individual, so this is nothing more than a guess on her part. As for whatever the two men were hauling, investigators assume it was Nikki's body. Now, James didn't tell the police about what he'd seen right away, as he still thought the duffel bag had something to do with Nikki's impending move and not her disappearance. He also knew she wasn't in a great place financially because he noticed she was apparently moving out in the middle of the night, he figured Nikki was skipping out on her last month's rent. So as any good friend might, he kept the duffel bag interaction a secret in an effort to protect her. When he finally reported the incident to detectives, they showed him several photographs, including one of Caleb Cannon. James didn't recognize any of the men in the photos, However, when he saw security cam footage of Caleb, he recognized him as one of the men who had been struggling to carry that heavy duffel bag. Meaning, if the detectives were correct and Nikki was in the bag, then James had spotted Caleb in the act of disposing of her remains. No matter how much evidence seemed to indicate Caleb's guilt, police still haven't found Nikki's body, or any hard evidence for that matter that proved she met a violent end. Even the cadaver dog's reaction only showed that decomposing remains had once been in her house, though it didn't necessarily mean they were hers. The police couldn't say with any certainty that Nikki was even dead, let alone that she'd been murdered, at least not by Caleb's hands or in some other way. Caleb also had a lot of alternate explanations about why Nikki may have gone missing. He gave statements to police implying Nikki used drugs and that she was a sex worker. He also speculated she might have skipped town while abusing substances, or that she might have died while performing risky sexual services for a client. And in all fairness, police did find evidence that Nikki had used controlled substances, but it's unclear how much truth there was to the rest of his statement. It's possible Caleb was trying to send police off on a wild goose chase. Figuratively, this was the equivalent of bleaching her house, as he was possibly trying to destroy the truth and covering it up with caustic lies. Clearly, Nikki's loved ones didn't buy his story. Many were all too certain that Nikki was already dead, most likely by his hands. Nikki and Caleb's son, who we've been referring to as Isaac told a friend that he believed his dad most likely killed his mother. Then in July of 2014, Nikki's boyfriend, Jason Henry, posted on Facebook about the case. He offered a $1,000 reward to anyone who could help police recover her remains. He even promised not to ask the tipster any probing questions about how they knew about Nikki's final resting place. As Jason put it in his post, quote, I want nothing more than the location of Nikki's body. I would offer a million if I could, but $1,000 is what I have. We don't actually know if anyone took Jason up on the offer, but given that Nikki's remains still weren't recovered afterward, we can make an educated guess that no one came forward with any usable tips. So months passed in which the police kept gathering information in hopes they'd one day have enough to make an arrest. But even after the FBI became involved with the case, they still didn't manage to locate Nikki's body. Nikki's good friend, Brittany McCann, was also convinced of Caleb's guilt. And while the police slowly and methodically continued on with their investigation, she took justice into her own hands. only took a bit of asking around, but according to reporting with the Crossville News, Brittany learned that Caleb had recently started a new job doing maintenance at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So she fired off countless emails contacting every person with authority she could find on campus. As she put it, quote, I let them know Caleb's history. I sent them links to the news stories because that's not going to show up on a background check. Because the arrest hasn't happened yet, but it will. Days later, the vice chancellor replied to Brittany, confirming they'd received the information. And a short while after that, Caleb was dismissed from his job. It was a small victory for Brittany. She told the press, quote, I hate to say it, but it feels great. But I don't want Caleb to be able to live a normal life when Nikki is not living hers. And that's the rub. Brittany won a small battle but the war for justice was still elusive. Caleb may have lost his job, but he was still a free man, and Nikki's case remained open and unsolved. Progress wouldn't inevitably come from doxing campaigns either, but by raising awareness and keeping the pressure on the police to solve the homicide. 3 months after a disappearance in August of 2014, Nikki's friends arranged a public memorial Acknowledging that she was most likely dead by now. Police statements at the time reflected a similar attitude. They assumed Nikki had been murdered. And that had been their top theory since the early stages of the investigation. But as they told the press at one point in the summer of 2014. They were still holding out hope that she may one day turn up alive. But the more time passed, the more those hopes seemed to be in vain. We don't know what the actual tipping point in this case was or which discovery or statement spurred the police to finally take action. What we do know is that in October of 2015, police arrested Caleb. It had been about 18 months since Nikki had gone missing. When they announced that he was being charged with first-degree murder, they also posted a call for information about Nikki's whereabouts. But the call still didn't produce a body. And while Caleb was in custody awaiting trial, he inadvertently gave investigators more information that they could one day use to implicate him in Nikki's murder. According to his cellmate, Brian Brewington, Caleb bragged to him about the murder. Not only did he take credit for Nikki's homicide, he also allegedly specified precisely how he disposed of her remains. He had showed up earlier that day and when he arrived at the house, there was another kid. He sent them both outside and had the house to himself. He followed her to the bedroom, took out a pair of brass knuckles, struck her in the back of the head, and took a cord out he ripped off an appliance and wrapped it around her neck and strangled her to death. He took the body and put it in the bathroom. He then retrieved a tarp, put her body in the trunk, and took her back to Knoxville. When he took her back to Knoxville, he took the body to a farm and put it in a machine that ground up her body that was meant for feeding pigs. Of course, later on, Caleb's attorneys contested Brian's statement. They argued Brian wasn't exactly trustworthy. Maybe he was just telling the police what they wanted to hear so he could get on their good side before his own trial. If the police had been able to find any of Nikki's remains on that pig farm, it might have proven that Brian was telling the truth. But they didn't. Maybe because he was lying or perhaps because Caleb invented the story about grinding up Nikki's body for his own reasons. Or potentially, Brian and Caleb were both being honest. But this statement didn't come to light until over a year after Nikki's disappearance. So if she had in fact been ground up and fed to pigs, it's likely far too much time had passed for any of her remains to be recovered. It was up to the courts now to decide who they believed as they sat for a 2017 hearing. When it came to motive, prosecutors argued that Caleb was unhappy about his and Nikki's custody arrangement. He wanted to see his son more often than once every other weekend, and he might have been frustrated by Nikki's plans to move in with her boyfriend, Jason. This was all an educated guess, but numerous witnesses testified to the facts on Nikki's behalf. Now, we only know a portion of what was said on the stand, because some statements come from minors, including Caleb and Nikki's own son, Some of the information was not broadcast to the public. Likewise, some of the testimony was never disseminated due to fears about the witness's safety. Additionally, certain legal processes were also kept confidential, as it seems the judge was at least partially concerned that the hearing had the potential to become a media circus. In order to tamp down on some of the press coverage, certain parts of the trial happened behind closed doors, and those records were sealed but from what we were able to find in our own research, the state presented a compelling case. They brought in Nikki's friends to talk about how she'd been fighting with Caleb and how truly unusual it would be for her to just take off and abandon her son, her pets, and personal items like her purse. Her neighbor talked about how he saw Caleb carrying a heavy duffel bag out of her house the night of her disappearance. Investigators had also testified about how their cadaver dogs detected the scent of human remains in Nikki's bathtub and in Caleb's car. There was also the testimony from Caleb's cellmate, Brian, about the pseudo-confession. But he wasn't the only witness to testify that Caleb had bragged about murdering Nikki. His ex-girlfriend also described all of his boasts. He would have the perfect alibi because he would have his son with him and she would just disappear. And everybody would assume that she had just relapsed back on drugs or that she just ran off. According to the ex-girlfriend, Caleb also talked about this apparently perfect murder plan quite often. But other witnesses and prosecutors' arguments never made it to the jurors. For example, when investigators searched Caleb's home, they found a book about another recent murder in the Nashville area, that of Janet March. Prosecutors wanted to argue that Caleb may have read up on the March case in order to brush up on what to do or what not to do to get away with murder. However, defense attorneys blocked that argument before the trial began. And to be fair, an interest in true crime does not necessarily make someone a murderer. Hopefully, all of you are a testament to that. Based on what they did here, the jurors ultimately ruled that they agreed with the state's prosecution. The judge issued the verdict and the sentence with minimal fanfare.
5: All right, Mr. Cannon, if you'll please stand. Mr. Cannon, you have heard the verdict of this jury. Uh, They have found you guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. Uh, That is an automatic life sentence uh, with the possibility of parole since there was no uh, ask for enhanced punishment. Uh, So I'm going to accept that verdict and find you guilty and sentence you to life imprisonment. Um, so there will not be no need for a sentencing hearing since it, there's an, it's an automatic
1: sentence. As of this recording, Caleb Cannon is still serving his prison sentence. To some, his conviction was bittersweet. The investigators who'd solved the disappearance saw the ruling as a victory. Two cold case detectives even won an award for their role in the investigation. But many of Nikki's friends spoke to journalists immediately following the trial. Discussing their mixed feelings. They were glad that Caleb had finally been brought to justice, but that didn't change the reality that Nikki was still gone and would never return to their lives. In addition, Nikki's remains still have never been found. We can only imagine how this must feel for her family, who still wake up every single day having no earthly idea or confirmation of her whereabouts. <laughs> Without a body, there's always the infinitely small possibility that Nikki Burgess might still be alive somewhere. No one can know if she was really killed and her remains destroyed, like a stain wiped out by bleach, or if there's some other explanation in which she's still alive. It's unlikely, sure, but not impossible. This has to be one of the most challenging elements of a no-body homicide. It's not the difficulties in crime scene investigation or in securing a conviction. It's the way these cases defy a simple answer and explanation. Even if all of Nikki's friends and family members are nearly 100% confident that she was in fact murdered, they may never know for sure. There's always that slight possibility that she may just show up one day alive and well. For Nikki's sake and for that of every other person who's disappeared, we can hope that someday soon, a missing person will defy the odds and actually come home. But until that happens, with all due respect to Taylor Swift, we have to acknowledge that even when there is no body, solid investigative police work can still uncover the crime.